0: Welcome to Real Marketers, where we hear from marketers who move fast, ask forgiveness, not permission, obsess about driving results, and are filled to the brim with crazy ideas and the guts to implement them. This is not a fireside chat, and there's absolutely no bullshit allowed here. And I'm your host, Stephanie Cox. I have more than 15 years of marketing experience, and I've pretty much done about everything in my career. I believe speed is better than perfection. I use the oxford comma. I love Coca-Cola, have exceptionally high standards, and surround myself with people who get shit done. On this show, my guests and I will push boundaries, share the real truths about marketing, and empower you to become a real marketer. Our first guest episode of Real Marketers is finally here. And in true real marketer fashion, I had a completely different guest plan for this episode, but decided to change my mind on Friday afternoon. Yes, I'm talking like two days ago. It turns out that I had an interview scheduled for the podcast on Friday, and that person actually had their company acquired by Smartsheets a couple of days before. And so what do I do? I did the interview. Quickly afterwards, decided to make him our first guest of Real Marketers, and my team helped quickly edit and set promotion of this episode in a matter of hours on a Friday afternoon. That's definitely the definition of moving fast. So a huge thank you to Michelle and Lorena for their ability to get shit done so quickly, even on a Friday afternoon. Now, let's meet my first guest. James Winter is the VP of marketing at Brandfolder. He's held previous marketing roles at Aspire IQ, DiPad, Nexmo and Seagate Technology. And we're talking all about keeping the secret of an exciting upcoming acquisition, what he calls the Salesforce fallacy, how he can't turn off his desire to move fast and so much more. Trust me, you're going to like this one. So one of the things I like to ask everyone, you know, instead of the traditional introduction is tell me something that no one else really knows about you. So what is your one thing that no one really seems to know about you?
1: Well, it's an interesting question. And the most interesting answer I can give will come with a caveat, which is that people who have known me for a while do know certain aspects of this. Um, but I grew up in a religious cult for the first 15, 16 years of my life and got out around the time of like my junior year of high school.
0: I would not have guessed that. I can imagine that's had a really big impact on your personal life, um, obviously, growing up and also probably as an adult, too.
1: Yeah, yeah, certainly tends to uh, have some have some effects, but that's for sure.
0: <laughs> well, I don't know how I follow that one up because I was usually I like to share something about myself and now I'm kind of like, don't know what to share. Um, <laughs> Maybe, okay, maybe I'll start with um, some, maybe the biggest thing about me that most people don't know is I actually had a brain tumor six years ago and had brain surgery and it was so rare that there were only five doctors at the time in the United States that could operate on it. So I had to fly from Indy to Phoenix to have the surgery done. So I am a medical mystery as my doctors tell me.
1: (laughs) Wow. I'm glad that you uh, seem to be doing all right.
0: Yeah. And what's, what's funny about that is, um, you know, a lot of people know that I was on medical leave, but you know, when you tell someone that you've had a brain tumor, they kind of look at you weird and like, like they don't know what to say or how to respond. So Mm -hmm. I don't usually talk, I don't usually talk about it. And if you saw me today, you wouldn't notice. And so, um, but anyways, that's my little to do. So let's talk about marketing now. Um, since we have both shared some personal life stuff. You have been at Brandfolder for a while now. So can you tell me everyone just a little bit about your company and kind of what Brandfolder does before we get started?
1: Sure. So I joined Brandfolder about two years ago. And Brandfolder is in the digital asset management space. So we provide a really intuitive, easy-to-use cloud-based solution to uh, create, store, manage, and distribute and analyze all of your digital assets. So everything from photos to videos to PDFs, PowerPoints, even more obscure things like 3D files and 360-degree viewer images. So you can kind of think of it like cloud storage on steroids, but with a whole lot of cool stuff like Adobe... Uh, integrations and other things that make it really easy for marketers and creatives to focus on the more important work.
0: And you've had some exciting news this week. Um, what's happened at Brandfolder that's been all a buzz?
1: Yeah, so uh, super exciting to be featured on the front page of Bloomberg. But we we got acquired by a great company out of Bellevue, Washington, called SmartSheet, which I'm sure lots of people are familiar with. So uh, it's it's a really great outcome. Um, the team over there has been awesome throughout this whole process. Everyone I've met on the exec team there has been amazing, and I'm really looking forward to to work with everyone. It's a great outcome with a great company, and everyone's keeping their job. Brandfolder is remaining independent uh, for you know some period of time, so there's no disruption to customers or anything. So it's really like the best possible outcome, as far as I can tell. This is my first time going through an acquisition while I've been at a company, so I did any experience, but I have to say I thought. Uh, We could do a lot worse, and I couldn't be more excited to be joining the SmartSheet team.
0: That's awesome. How much like fun or stressful has it been? Like, kind of leading up to that, you know, knowing that you were, uh, you know, involved to some extent during the process, and you know, it's as a leader, right? You know, a lot more than the rest of the organization might know. So, talk me through kind of how that was.
1: Yeah, it's been interesting, and it's not the first time we've gone through it. Like Brandfolder, even over the last couple of years. Has always been intentionally a really prime acquisition target. Like, we haven't raised a ton of money, but we've had incredible growth and our retention, our net retention is awesome. Our NPS is awesome. Customers love the product. And we, as a leadership team, really went back and forth for a while over the last year. Like, do we raise another round? Do we just self fund our growth because we're cash flow positive? Um, so we had a lot of optionality and we'd had acquisition talks before and lots of investors were interested. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't totally novel, but this was definitely a very serious one. And um, I think the, the overwhelming feeling was like, when you know an exciting secret and you can't tell people, it's like you, you're getting your significant other like this amazing gift or something. It's super exciting and you want to tell them and get them excited about it too.
0: Yeah. No, that's how I feel like almost every Christmas on like Christmas, you know, I buy the gifts for the kids. I'm always like, this is so cool. They're going to love it. I want to give it to them now. My husband's like, it's not Christmas. Chill out. But I'm like, but.
1: (gasps) Yep. exactly.
0: It is. It is. It is very hard. And then it's also that thing where you, I don't know for you, but for me, I'll start being like, oh, I wonder if they noticed like that I'm really excited or that I kept asking if they like this when it came on TV. Like, am I giving away secrets and not realizing it?
1: <laughs> yeah, there's definitely that like uh, nervousness of like letting something slip to someone or something like that. And I, I just had to like, you know, be careful about who is involved in what.
0: Yeah, especially since Smartsheets is publicly traded it adds another layer of complexity to it around keeping it quiet. That isn't yeah. necessarily the case with like if it was just another private company.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So you've had the opportunity to really build out a marketing team from like the growth stage. Talk to me about what that's been like. How do you get started when you kind of come in and you're building the foundation of just not just the marketing efforts, but also the team? What have you done and learned from that process? A lot of my
1: career, you know aside from my first job, which was at Seagate, which you know is obviously a huge established company, has been at companies that were just getting started with the marketing journey in a lot of ways. so my first job uh, when I moved to San Francisco was at a company called Nexmo, which was about thirty people and didn't really have anyone on the marketing team and I was hired there and then we brought on leadership and they built out a team and uh, I learned a lot about what not to do in that period. <laughs> and then...
0: Oh, I want to know all about the, what not to do. So finish yeah. and then we'll get back to that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, think the, uh, I think the biggest mistake there was assuming that hiring someone who was at a big company knew how to build something that could sell to big companies. Like there was this assumption that just because someone had worked at a large company, like, you know, take Microsoft or Salesforce or whatever. And I actually call this the Salesforce fallacy, which is just because someone is successful in one environment, it means practically nothing as to whether they will be successful at another one. And I think a lot of people make that mistake when they're hiring. So Next was an instant learning experience. And then I had the chance to go to Dialpad. And I worked for a really amazing CMO there named Morgan Norman. And he built just the most incredible team I've ever worked on and super high performing. And they all, a lot of them still work together and a lot of them have gone on to do really awesome stuff. But uh, I really got a great education in how to build a good team and what, it, what a good marketing program looked like. And then uh, I joined Aspire IQ to build out the marketing team for the first time. So I got to take a lot of those learnings from Dialpad and put them into practice. And uh, kind of the same thing at Brandfolder. Joined, they had had some different marketing folks, but never like a full fledged team, or you know, I guess what I would call like the best practices for hiring uh, a full on marketing team and leader. So it was really cool to come in and Brandfolder. When I joined, already had an awesome product that was getting better every month, a great sales team, and so. Everything, a great customer experience team, like everything was kind of primed for marketing to make a big impact. And we were able to do that because great product, great sales team, great support team, and the resources to hire a best-in-class B2B SaaS team.
0: So that's great to hear. And I know you can probably had a lot of successes and a lot of things that you're like, I wish someone would have told me this sooner. But let's get back to the Salesforce fallacy. I love that because I have the same belief, which is if someone worked at a large organization and was successful and you bring them to a startup or a scale up, they likely don't Know what to do, (laughs) or they don't understand the like resources that are available, and doesn't mean they'll be ultimate ultimately successful in that environment. What have you like in your experience? What have you seen the biggest struggles for people that have hired from large companies and brought them into more growth stage companies?
1: I think to an extent, it depends on the role. So I think for salespeople, the hardest thing is that when you're at an established company, you often don't really have to sell the company at all. You're just selling the product, and there's no Validation stage that you have to get over. Whereas when you're in a company that no one's ever heard of and you know is smaller and doesn't have the same resources or brand equity already, you not only have to sell the product, you have to sell the entire company and the trust that this person or this organization needs to put in your product. So that's, I think, one of the biggest ones is like salespeople who would probably be killer enterprise reps at. You know, Salesforce, for example, would struggle if they don't have that Salesforce name backing up. And you know, I'm sure. And and the the other way goes as well, which is like someone who's a good startup, like grinding account exec, might not have the polish or know how to navigate certain things at the enterprise level, like someone that Salesforce does. On the marketing side, I think it can be similar. I think one of the biggest things is just not being used to not having the resources and having to be a little bit scrappier and um, being used to doing things in a certain way where they had different teams of people to support them. They had all these different support functions. And now they're having to like really get their hands dirty and, and roll up their sleeves and like do something that maybe they haven't ever done in their career or haven't done since they were super junior. Like, you know, I still write website copy. I'm still making, I'm still involved in making collateral for the sales team. Sometimes like at a small company, you just have to do a lot. And some people who uh, are used to things being a certain way might not be ready for that.
0: No, completely agree. I think um, I've seen that happen too in my career. And my, I think it's partially, at least from my experience, what's been hard when you, ha- like from a sales perspective is, you know, you, as to your point, they're used to the name, right? They don't, I don't think they realize how much like the name Salesforce or Microsoft or any of these big players that really everyone knows has on the number of leads it drives, the quality of those leads, the sales process overall, right? You're not, you're selling more on, you know, are you a good fit for what they need versus like, should they even seriously consider you? And then I think- you know, the other thing is a lot of times like reps at larger companies, they have a pretty step sales process, right? They're all trained on how to use it. Yeah. They have their own take on it, but it's kind of like, you know, we do X, Y, and Z during the deal, we have soul cons and then you get to more of a startup or scale up and you're like, hi, we're still figuring this out and we're laying the tracks as the train is going at like hundred miles an hour. And we're probably going to change it like 10 times. I hope you like that. <laughs> and not everyone does.
1: Yeah, definitely. If you're, if you're like obsessed with following a certain process, being at a startup might not be for you.
0: No. And I think everyone, um, and I think Silicon Valley and like some of the shows have like glamorized it a little bit where it's, you know, it's everyone enjoys it and it's so much fun. And I think it is true, but it's, to me, it's really like, do you have the personality type for, Hey, this needs to get done. And regardless of what your title is or years of experience, you'll roll up your sleeves, get in and just do it.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And everyone's, I always find like when hiring, everyone says they will, but like the reality of that, it's totally different. So, one of the things about Brand Folder that I think is interesting is your product could work really for anyone, right? Like, theoretically, any marketer could use your product, correct?
1: Yeah. I mean, we we sell pretty much every single industry you could possibly imagine.
0: So, we have a similar situation at LumaBay too. So, I'd love to hear, like, how do you figure out like what to do and where to prioritize your resources when you could literally sell to everyone? But you don't have the resources to sell and market to everyone. Like, how do you handle that?
1: Yeah, it's it's been an interesting problem to solve, and it's always a moving target too, because changes to the product might unlock new categories that were previously not a great fit for your segmentation. So, when I joined Brandfolder, I had heard, you know, anecdotally from people like, "Oh, yeah, we do well with sports teams. We do well with." Uh, you know, like whatever healthcare companies, I don't remember exactly what all of them were. But when I dug in and tried to look at the data in Salesforce, um, it, it kind of told a different story. Like, yeah, we had a lot of breweries as customers, but they didn't pay us that much. And the sports teams that we did have took a long time to close. And the sales cycle wasn't particularly smooth for the amount of revenue that they generated. So when we really dug in, um, and this is something I would encourage everyone to do if you don't have a really good handle on this is uh, Clearbit makes a product that's just a batch upload. And so what you can do is export all of the domains from your Salesforce customer list or all of your opportunity data and upload that into Clearbit and it's like 10 cents a row. So maybe a couple thousand bucks for a lot of companies. and. It'll give you all of the industry, company size, like give you all of the data that you wish you had on these companies, and then throw that into a spreadsheet and just start taking a look at, um, you know, which types of things correlate with better sales cycles. Like, what is the sales efficiency of a manufacturing company versus a medical company? or which industry has the highest ASP or which industry has the better win rate or whatever. There's lots of metrics you should look at to try and determine what your ideal customer profile is. And it's really easy to get that data now with Clearbit.
0: Well, I love that you just shared that example. That's one of the things I know um, you and I are part of Revenue Collective and I love that you share sometimes are like these like really helpful, like quick little like, hey, you should use this to hack your website. I, it's just a great, helpful way to share additional content. So thanks for sharing another example of that.
1: Yeah, maybe I'll make that my I haven't talked about that one. So maybe I'll do one today.
0: Yeah, I love that. Well, the, and that's to me, like part of the reason why I reached out and wanted to get you on the show is I just find you have so many great takeaways. And I feel like you try so many different things and tend to move, you know, pretty fast in your efforts to drive results for your business. And that not all marketers do that. Yeah,
1: I, I can't really turn it off. Like, <laughs> I get really... Me rough. either. <laughs> And I just, my mind is like racing all the time with like, Oh, we should try this. We should do this. like And sometimes I have to rein it in because it can be distracting, but I think generally it's a positive.
0: No, I'm the same way. And I, it's so funny because I tell my team all the time, like I have this like unlimited number of crazy ideas in my brain at any one time. And I just like try and figure out like how many the team can handle. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in a period and like we're getting ready to do some big launches in the next couple weeks and um i literally said yesterday i promised like nothing else is going to get added to the list i really do promise this time because we're kind of like at our max capacity but i have like three other ideas and i'm like it'll well, be really great if we could do this in the next two weeks but that's probably not a, probably not great to do <laughs>
1: Yeah, one of the things I I really try to tell my team to like coach up on is managing up. So like if I'm saying something and saying this is a priority and we need to get this done, but then something else gets added to your plate, you need to let me know that what the trade-off is. Like tell me, okay, we can do that, but it's going to mean that this thing gets pushed out a few weeks later. And I really learned the power of that when I was a product manager.
0: No, that's such a good point. I said that yesterday to my team, something similar, you know, that you need to speak up or for instance, you know, maybe it doesn't get pushed off, but you know, we could do both. But if we did both, it means that they would look like this instead of what you, what you wanted. Are we okay with maybe like a more lighter weight version of what we initially planned and doing the bigger part as a fast follow? You know, what's the, I always tell people, you need to ask like, what's the real driver? Is it time or is it function, like functionality or you know, content of something like what is the thing that matters the most? Mm
1: -hmm. And I think too, there's a really good opportunity these days for process improvement and automation and outsourcing. So I've run, I ran a contest with my team that everyone participated in to do a flowchart process map diagram of something that they do on like a semi-regular basis in their role and how they could either automate or, Outsource or do something to make it much more efficient. And it was really cool to see everyone, whether they were on like the community marketing side or demand gen or marketing ops or events, like come up with these new ways to solve a problem that used to take them a little while and now they could get done in a much faster amount of time.
0: Have you at all experimented with like Upwork or having your team use any of those types of platforms to get some of the more mundane marketing related work that just needs to get done?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm a huge fan of finding those opportunities. And when I was at Aspire IQ, before we raised our Series A, my budget was like $5,000 a month. And it was just me for a little bit. So I got really good at figuring out cheap ways to do things, and there's a lot of talented people around the world who um, are working remotely and, and don't like don't charge an exorbitant fee that you can just add on. So, like proofreading, for example, you can pay someone you know maybe twenty bucks her blog post or something and have them proofread for grammar everything that you're putting out and they'll turn it around really quick. Or I had this really awesome Polish designer who is this woman that did great work and super quick. And like when we didn't have the design resources in house, we would send it to her and she would do an awesome job. So I think if your resources are, are limited or you need overflow, there's a lot of good people you can tap for that
0: it's like, I have the freelancers that are like, so that are really great at what they do. They're reasonably priced. I totally trust them. And then I always, always have this like kind of situation where people are like, Oh, who does your, like, who does that for you? And I'm like, I don't want to tell you because I don't want to, lo- I don't want them to do your stuff too, because then now they can't do all of my stuff when it's last
1: minute. Yeah. Or they or raise their prices because they realize yeah. <laughs> how much more they the could can.
0: Yeah. It's like, I kind of need like first dibs or something. So Thinking about just marketing overall, what do you think is the most undervalued area of marketing that people don't spend enough time or resources investing in that would be have the biggest impact for most businesses?
1: At least of the organizations I've worked at, it's some combination of segmentation and focus. So... With a company like Brandfolder, where you can sell to everyone, sometimes it can be tough to to have that conversation with people who have been there for a while saying like, Hey, we're going to focus on these types of businesses, maybe at the expense of these other ones, because that's the right area for us to make the most efficient revenue out of. And I know you've done things a certain way in the past, but we we need to focus on this area because you know, resources are limited and, and not everyone is created equal. So I think the the challenge and I saw this at Nexmo as well. And when you can sell everything to everyone, it's a lot harder to convince people not to do that and to focus on what's actually making you money. So I think getting a really good understanding of like, what are the most efficient types of companies in generating revenue? And what can you do to help accelerate those, even if it means not treating everyone the same.
0: No, I think that makes a ton of sense. Now, one of the things I like to ask everyone, because if you've been doing marketing for any period of time, you've probably had something that has not went as planned and has, you know, either just failed a little bit or failed miserably. So tell me your story of something that in your career has not worked out as you had hoped and what you've learned from that. So other people cannot do the same thing.
1: I think the biggest mistake that I made in my first time as a marketing leader at Aspire IQ was being too much of a yes man. And basically, the situation was like, they would say, okay, here's your resources. And we want this. And I didn't really have the confidence or the the knowledge or expertise yet to be like, okay, that's great. Here's what you'll get for that. But if you give me this, here's what I can... Here's what I think I can produce. So I think being more vocal in asking for things would have been helpful in that situation. So I think it's really important to find that voice and like speak up and say, hey, like you're asking for this and that's not really a reasonable request with the resources we have. So if you want that, like we need this to do so, or there's going to be, you know, consequences in like quality or speed or whatever it might be.
0: No, I think that's such a great point because so many people, especially when they're younger in their career, don't know how to say no. And they don't know how to say like, your request is unreasonable. I was talking to a friend that's a marketer a couple of weeks ago, and she was given these kind of really outrageous goals by her leadership team. And she was like, what do I do? I don't have the resources to do that. And I said, this is like on a Friday, they had that conversation. I said, okay, well, this weekend, we're going to put together a plan. Like I'll help you. We'll put together a plan of what you need in order to do that. And you're going to tell them what you need in order to hit those goals. And then you get, when you do that, you get to have a conversation about, okay, when he sees all you need, whether it's, you know, additional help, it's time, it's commitment from them, you know, or money to do that tied to the goal, then you get to have a conversation about it and see like, okay, well, does the goal need to change? Or can I get the resources, right? And it, it feels a little bit more productive sometimes than just saying like, hey, that's unreasonable. So that's one of the approaches I love to take with people is, hey, if you want to give me a really crazy goal, awesome. Well, let me tell you exactly how I need it. And I like write it all down. <laughs> so you can see I put the time and thought into it. And see, you know, hopefully, if we can kind of come to an amenable situation, that's somewhere, you know, that meets your needs, and is realistic.
1: Yeah. And I, that's, I think, something that a lot of companies could do a better job of is whether it's top down or bottom up, like coming to some reasonably data driven assumption. So when we go through the budgeting process and, and setting targets, like we have the sales targets from that the board sets and agrees to. And then we also have the reality of the budget. And so we'll back into the numbers both ways where it's like, okay, based on our historical data. If you give us this much money and we have this many SDRs or whatever, and sales generates this much pipeline on their own, um, we can expect this much pipeline at the end of the quarter. And... Then also, if you take the revenue target and back into it saying, like, here's our win rate, here's the average selling price, um, how much budget would we need to hit this target? And we usually end up kind of somewhere in the middle of those two.
0: Well, compromise is so important these days, I think, especially as we're all working remotely, right, to kind of understand where everyone else's point of view is and where they're coming from and find a solution that makes everyone win. Because I always say this about, like, sales quotas. Sales quotas are great. And I love you know, stretch goals. I'm a big fan of them. But at the same token, if they are so stretched that they're unreasonable, no one's motivated by any unreasonable goal. You can't get people like really to get to do what they need to do. And that's not on them. It's more on you as a leader to make sure that they have a way to be successful. So in true real marketer fashion of moving fast, here's one takeaway for the James shared you can implement right now. So what I want you to do is take an hour and map out all of your repetitive tasks. So what are the things that you're doing every single day, every single week, or every single month? and really think about how many of those that you can automate. What can you take off your plate through automation? Or if automation isn't an option for some of them, can you get a small budget and use a platform like Upwork to outsource some of those repetitive tasks? Find ways to better scale yourself, and that's a great example of how you can do it. So, what are you waiting for? You've been listening to Real Marketers. If you love what you've heard, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. And don't forget to tell a friend. All of this marketing goodness shouldn't be kept a secret.